Father, we just um, thank you for that truth, God. God, we thank you for your great love with which you loved us, God. God, that while we're still in sin, you loved us, you pursued us, God, that you gave your best for us. And uh, Jesus, we just invite you here. We, we want this time to be about you, our, our minds, our hearts, our desires, our will, just focused on you, Jesus. God, that you'd remove distractions from this week, that you'd remove uh, maybe the frustrating things that have happened, God, that, God, you would just show up, that you'd speak to our hearts. For those who are discouraged, Lord, that you just encourage them. God, for those who are far from you that, you, that they would see today that you are pursuing them. God, for us who maybe have turned our backs on you at different points, we just ask, Jesus, that you just grab hold of our, our hearts, our attention. Jesus, we want to see you. We want to know you. We thank you, God, that you came to us. We thank you, God, that's not about what we do for you, but it's about what you did for us, Jesus. We thank you for that. And Lord, we ask that this morning, again, our, our affection, our hearts be tor tor turned towards you, God, and that you just be in this place. It'd be so clear that you are here right now. And we just ask this, Jesus, in your wonderful and precious name. Amen. Amen. Hey, everyone, good morning. Do me a favor. Uh, say hi. Say good morning to someone next to you. Take a moment or two. Get to know them. Don't wait for them to go to you. You go to them. Ask them questions. Be friendly. All right. Hey, once you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, hi. Good morning, guys. How are you? Good to see you. Welcome to The Exchange. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. But we are in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. It is really good to be here with you guys. Uh, I was feeling terribly sick yesterday, laying in bed, drinking water, just sweating profusely. I'm sorry to gross you out, but I just sweat when I'm sick. So it's good to be here with you guys. You're like, that's gross. Don't do that. Um, but it is really good to be here with you guys. We're in Mark chapter 11. Uh, quick reminder, just in case you're with us a couple weeks ago, uh, when it comes to the Israel trip that we're doing, it's Israel 2020. Uh, we're going a few days after Easter. Um, I think there's about 14 people registered right now. So uh, we have 20-something spots left. If you'd like to be a part of that, you can go see the table in the back. We'll get you more info, the sign-up link where you can read about that. But that's exciting. Looking forward to that in a year and a half. Um, <laughs> all right, hey, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Uh, let me just do a quick little review in case you are new or like, what are we going through? What's the point of this? The gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel. Uh, this is the, the quick pace gospel. It's called the ADD gospel. Uh, it's the gospel that's a very, very quick pace. Mark kind of summarizes, gets to the point. I appreciate Mark, Mark's perspective on this. Mark was discipled by Peter. So it's believed that this gospel was handed down from Peter to Mark, like Peter is telling Mark what he saw firsthand. So it's almost from Peter's perspective as well. Uh, but here in Mark chapter 11, here's kind of the new text we're entering into. So Mark chapter 11 begins the last week of Jesus' life on earth. All right, so we're entering into now a chapter where one-third of the book of Mark is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. I think that's so important. Mark slows it down, the first 10 chapters, looking at his life and ministry. Now we get to Mark 11, and Mark's going to slow down the pace and focus on the last week of Jesus' life. So let me kind of explain and, and show you where you're at. We're going to actually look at 26 verses today, almost covering the full chapter. I think you can handle it. I know it's a lot of reading today, but I, I think you guys can handle this part. Um, here's what I'm excited about. This is an interesting text to me. Because so far in the Gospel of Mark, wherever Jesus went, we see him bringing life and healing and restoration. So for example, Jesus is healing the blind. He's healing the paralyzed. He's casting out demons. He's raising dead people to life. Like wherever Jesus goes, he brings life. Now here's the irony. 
We're going to read today the last miracle performed by Jesus. And the last miracle performed by Jesus is not Jesus bringing life, it's actually bringing death. So the last miracle Jesus performs, you'll see in a second, is where he curses a fig tree and it withers and dies. It's the last miracle we see performed by Jesus. I think this is the irony we see in Mark. And we're going to look at this more in depth because we're going to see a different side of Jesus today. Today we're going to look at Jesus responding and reacting not like many of us would think he'd respond or react based off what we've studied so far. I think this is so necessary for us because we're going to see Jesus in a second uh, tell the disciples to take a donkey, to over- he's going to overturn tables, he's going to curse a fig tree. We're like, what's up with Jesus today? And this is a side of him I think that we need to see. That we see that Jesus, yes, of course, he's filled with love and grace, but he also has a, st- a standard and desire for holiness and for righteousness and justice And we're going to see this side of Jesus today. So the thought today in these 26 verses, and the the main title, I guess you could say, is did Jesus really just do that? All right, did Jesus really just do that? He's telling his disciples, take that donkey. I'm going to overturn tables. I'm going to curse this fig tree. And we're going to go, Jesus, is that, did you really just do that? Like, did you really just say that? Did you really just act this way? And yes, and we need to see him in this light. I think it's so important for us to see him in this light. And maybe you've met, remember, uh, if you've been with us, you remember I've mentioned this before. Mark does this thing in writing that's unique. It's called like, the sandwich technique, where he starts off with one story, interrupts it with another story, and then comes back to that story. And he's going to do that. Talk about Jesus' entrance, talk about the fig tree, talk about the temple going back to it, and then talk about the fig tree again. It's like a double sandwich technique. So they're not just random stories. It seems like when I first read this, I'm like, what is up with this fig tree passage? Why is it so randomly here? And we're going to see that this fig tree passage really speaks of the first passage and the third passage, if that makes any sense. So let's just read it. Actually, let's pray. It's a lot to read. Let's just pray, and then we'll look at this uh, more in depth in a second. Let's pray. Father, we just, um, we thank you that we can slow down now, look at Palm Sunday, look at Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, being received by, as the Messiah by so many, God, I ask that um, you would speak to our hearts, that this would not just be another Bible study where we just kind of hear some facts or information, but Lord, that your Holy Spirit would take this and just drive it deep into our hearts. God, that myself and everyone here would just have ears to hear from you. Jesus, that we would learn from the different people in this passage and, and really just from Jesus' heart in this passage. God, speak to us. We ask that we would not be like the people in the temple who are just busy, but missing out on intimacy with you. So God, just speak to our hearts now. Be in this place, we ask in your wonderful name. Amen. You know, we as people, I think most of us would agree, we love big entrances. We love grand entrances. We love to make an entrance. I don't know if you've ever had to make an entrance before. You know, I think about my wedding and when they announced the bride and groom and Behind the closed doors is like everyone at our wedding, and like, like I don't know, I was so nervous just like walk out. All you're doing is walking, but just so nervous, like walk to a song, like, eh, and it's awkward. But we love to make big entrances. You know, think about how much money and time and creativity we as a culture will spend on making an entrance. Like, I don't watch WWE or whatever, F, I don't know what it's called, but I don't watch that, but you know that they make like a big entrance, they're playing the music, like spitting water in the air, right? You think of like boxers or MMA, and they just have like the crowds following them with their little hoodie on, punching the air. Like, we love to make an entrance. I think of movies, I love like Aladdin, I feel like Aladdin when he became Aladdin the Prince, like he like made this giant entrance on elephants, I'm like, yes, that's the way to do it, right? Like, we love to make an entrance in so many different ways. Back in the day, we used to do something in America called like ticker tape parades. 
don't know if you've ever heard of those or familiar with that, but there are parades we'd throw for someone when they came back home after doing something like incredible. So Olympians, we'd throw these parades for. When John Glenn was the first guy to orbit the earth, we threw the seven-mile parade where four million people showed up, dropped 74 tons of confetti just because this guy orbited the earth. Like we like to make an entrance, draw an entrance. We like to like make a big splash, I guess, when someone enters into town for the first time. And here's what's happening. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. We call this the triumphal entry. But when you compare it to the way we've done entries today, it's not, it's not so triumphant. It doesn't look like that. They're not throwing bouquets and flowers. They're throwing palm branches in their garments. And it's not as big and extravagant as we would think. It's really interesting. If you study this week, this would be the same week Pontius Pilate, you know, Roman ruler, he would have come into Jerusalem for the Passover. A couple different historians write about this, where Pilate comes in on his mighty horses, his army, and his chariot with his leather armor. And that would have been a triumphal entry. And here's Jesus on a donkey, probably dragging his feet, bigger than the donkey, like at eye level with people, no soldiers, just disciples. Like, I want you to think about, even in this day, if you were to tell a Roman, like, man, Jesus, did you see what happened yesterday? Jesus came in so triumphantly. You're like, you call that triumphant? You know, if a Roman general, you know, destroyed another army, let's say, and so to the point where they killed over 5,000 men, they'd come in, have this big giant celebration with their chariots, their horses. They'd bring the loot into, the, to, into Rome. They'd have a real triumphal entry. And they're going, you're calling that on a donkey a triumphal entry? And we're like, yes. And this is the way for us. It so speaks for us of Christianity because we're going to see that Jesus is triumphant through humility. And, and that's something that we're not used to. We're, that's not something we, we like, we don't boast in that. Like, man, that guy was so humble. Like, we, that's not something we really like, like look up to. But we're going to see this triumphal entry of Jesus. And again, if you compare it to what would have happened this very same week, it's not so triumphal, but let's look at it more in depth. And here's what I want to see. We're going to walk through Mark 11, verse 1 through 26. We're going to walk through this what did Jesus do? How did the people respond? What did Jesus say? What's the very first thing Jesus did? Being recognized as the coming king from the common people. What is the very first thing Jesus did? And it doesn't seem like he, he you know, wins the audience very well. So a uh, few points today. We'll put them up here just as we walk through this text. We're going to see, number one, the entrance. We're going to see the entrance. Then we're going to see the tree. Then we're going to look at the cleanse. And then we're going to talk about the lesson from all of this. So the entrance, the tree, the cleanse, the lesson. Here's how we're going to break down this text. So number one, we first of all see the entrance. How does Jesus enter? Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you've entered it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and, and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing this colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus commanded, so they let them go. All right, this is what we call Palm Sunday. This is the triumphal entry. This is a week before, uh, you know, Jesus' death and, cruci- or death and resurrection. And this, again, is Jesus coming in on a donkey, not a stallion, not a horse, not very pompous, but coming in humbly at eye level. And let me just say this. A donkey doesn't really communicate victory or, or gloriousness, right? I've ridden a donkey one time in Haiti. And it, let me just say it was not very glorious. It was pretty ugly to watch, I'm sure. But we look at this scenario with Jesus coming in on a donkey, and there's so many things attached to this. There's so many truths attached. Like, this was a moment of time 
that Jews were looking for and waiting for. Now, let me just first say this. Notice that Jesus has to borrow a donkey. Now, I know when you first read this, it seems like Jesus is like, hey, go steal that donkey. If they ask, just say, don't worry about it. Like, that's not what's happening. It seems as if, and we don't really know, obviously, but this guy was so ready for the response, the Lord has need of it, that he's like, yeah, take it. Take it. I have no idea if, if God appeared to this guy in a dream. Someone's going to ask for a donkey, and they ask, and they say this phrase, give it to him. I have no idea how this com- was communicated, but notice the phrase that they were to say to this man. It was simply, the Lord, the Lord has need of it. And let me just say this. We have a lot to learn from this donkey owner. <laughs> I don't know who he is. I want to know his name. We don't. Maybe one day in heaven, but you're the donkey owner. You gave your donkey. That's so cool. But we have a lot to learn from this guy. Because think about this. And think about this phrase, the Lord has need of it. Now, if you're Jewish, that could be a blasphemous thing because only God is Lord. If you're Roman, that's a blasphemous thing because they would greet each other by saying Caesar is Lord. And here they're obviously pointing to the Messiah and saying, hey, the Lord has need of it. And he's like, take it. And here's what I see. I see a willingness just to give it up. And honestly, I have a lot to learn from this guy. If God were to approach me or you at different points in our life and just simply say, hey, the Lord has need of this. Like, how willing am I to go, yeah, take, take my donkey, take my way of travel, take my way of making money, t- take it. Take the, way, take the thing that helps me out the most and provides an income for me and my family. Take it. That's a very hard thing to give. And I love this guy's response. And I would say, God, please like, develop that in me and within our church community. Of God's like, hey, uh, we need to feed the homeless. And you're like, God, take my fridge. Take my fridge, it's yours. Hey, we need a house for community groups. Hey, take my home, use, use it. Like, I want there to be that spirit of just willingness. Like, Lord, whatever it is you need, just take it. The Lord has need of it, okay. As soon as we hear the Lord has need of it, just this willingness to go, okay, I give it up. So we have a lot to learn from this guy. So Jesus takes this guy's, or the disciples come, and they take this guy's horse, and they bring it to Jesus. Now, why? What is this? Let me explain something. Do you notice this? This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark we see Jesus not walking. It's interesting to me. Jesus walked everywhere. He's never riding an animal. We never see that. This is the first time he comes riding. He's coming riding from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And here's what that's showing. That is basically telling everyone, I am claiming authority. Jesus is showing them by riding an animal in this way, in this fashion, I am claiming authority over this area and over you. It's a, it's a sign that people would do as royalty. This is something that Jesus and the disciples are trying to prep and, and saying, do you know what I'm really like, proclaiming by this? So Jesus is showing the people that they had royalty uh, and he had authority. And let me just again point this out really quick. Because it is kind of funny to me that he's riding a, a colt, the foal of a donkey, like a small horse donkey. It's basically a pony, right? <laughs> Jesus is riding a pony into, just like, I'm the Messiah. Like, that's a really interesting, funny thing to me. You know, we watched the royal wedding recently, and maybe you saw that. It would be strange if, strange if the royal wedding, you know, you have the bride and the groom. It would be funny to me if they came in, like, on a Kia, right? And they're, like, waving from the Kia, and they're like, why are they on a Kia? Like, that would just be a weird thing. No one's going to be like, oh, I like Kias. Why are you dissing Kias? Don't worry about it. But, like, could you imagine that, though? Like, they came in on something that just didn't fit that level. It would be strange. And here's why, obviously. And maybe you know this. Maybe, maybe you've seen this verse. Maybe you've heard this verse. Maybe not. But this was prophesied hundreds of years beforehand. The Messiah would come into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? If you would write this verse down, take note. Just remember it. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. An incredible prophecy about the Messiah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Listen to this. It says, uh, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, listen. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Let's just stop there really quick. I want you to hear the power in this. Your king, your king is coming to you. He's bringing salvation with him. This is very triumphant. My king's coming. He's bringing salvation. The next part of verse 9, he, is, he says he is lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. It doesn't really fit, right? 
It's funny, this frustrated a lot of rabbis. Like, this was something they didn't get. Our king is coming to us, and he's going to bring salvation, and he's on a donkey. Like, this was something that, that kind of frustrated them. They actually, certain rabbis would write and say, he's coming on a donkey to, to judge us because we must have done something wrong. He's not on a horse. He's on a, like, this frustrated them. This bugged them. They didn't get this. This is something that wasn't like, how, why would he come on a donkey? And here's what we see. We do see so much. When Christ comes, and let's just talk about this. When Christ comes, he comes humbly. Can I say that Jesus did not come into Jerusalem to take it by force? He did not come on a stallion with an army. He came in humbly. And the kingdom of God is so different than the kingdom of man. He does not take it by power or by force, but through love and humility and grace. And he comes in on a donkey and he comes in approachable. And I think this is so important. It's funny, Napoleon actually said this. I got this quote. I thought it was really good. He said, Alexander, Caesar, Charmeling, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. At this hour, millions of men would die for him. There is something unique about Jesus coming versus any other leader. Jesus did not come by force, he came in humility. Let me say this, if you know nothing about Christianity or nothing about Jesus, or maybe you do, let me just point this out first and foremost, that Jesus is incredibly approachable. Coming on a donkey at eye level, not on a horse looking down at you. Like, I, I have to say this because our God came to us in such humility, and it is so different, it is so unique than anything we've heard. You know, I want you to think about just the approachableness of Jesus, that Jesus is so approachable. I don't know if you've ever been around someone, like, famous, and, like, you're almost, like, scared to go to them. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone famous, like, talk, like, no, you t- I don't know if you've ever had that feeling. I remember I was in Southern California where we grew up, and I was at the gym, and I remember Dennis Rodman walks in. I'm like, oh, my gosh, Dennis Rodman. And, like, I love the Bulls. I'm like, it's Dennis Rodman. And I saw someone walk up to him asking for his autograph, and he, d- he just looked away. He didn't even look at them. And I was like, I'm not talking to him. Like, that, I'm like, he's not approachable. Um, I don't know if you've been around that, and you go, they're not approachable. This is scary. Jesus, the, the King of kings and Lord of lords, his all authority, all power, comes in on a donkey, and he's approachable. And I want us to see something about that. Do you notice the phrase in Zechariah 9.9, which is so important? It says, your king is coming to you. Can I tell you the essence of Christianity is that God came to us, that our king has come to us? Can I tell you other faiths, other religions, what does it say? It says, you go to God. Other faiths say, do these things, and you can have access to God. If you live a really good moral life, maybe one day God will reveal himself to you and, and say, you can have me. Like, but Christianity is our king came to us. I'm so thankful for that. I didn't have to find God. I didn't have to look for God. There's none who sought after God. There's none who found him. Like, my God came to me. That is so freeing. Because it, it kind of takes with that pride and ego of, look, I did these things. I worked this good life. And now I have a deep relationship with God. And that kind of creates a sense of pride and ego. But with Christianity, it's our king came to us. That when we wanted nothing to do with God, he's like, I'm going to you. That we're saying, God, I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't want, I don't want to be, follow you. Like, some of you in this room know what that's like. You're like, I never thought in a million years, three years ago, if you asked me to be a Christian, you, you'd be like, I'm, that'd be crazy. I would never, but you experienced your king coming to you. Your king came in and he intervened. And that's what happened with Jesus. He comes in on a donkey, lowly. It says lowly. He's approachable. He's someone people can go to. And I love this about our God. I love this about our Savior. We'll keep reading now in verse seven. What happens next? It says in verse seven, then they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches, we're told from other gospels, palm branches, from the trees, and they spread them on the road. Again, let me explain. This is what you would do for royalty. The road's filled with dirt and mud, animal feces, not so clean. So people actually, when royalty would come, they'd take off their clothes and throw it on the road. And this is communicating royalty is coming. Royalty is here. And we talked about this last week a little bit with blind Bartimaeus, but remember that cloak? 
That you probably only owned one cloak. This was important to you. This was valuable to you. And it's almost as if they're saying, Jesus, the best that we have, we're laying it down for you. Like, I want us to hear that and see that. They have to create this, make, they have to create this like, sh- saddle for Jesus to sit on the donkey with their cloaks, and then people start throwing it down the road. And they're basically saying, Jesus, I, I welcome you with everything. I welcome you. you take, you're going to take the very best. I give you the very best. And this is so often not my response to God. We're like, God, I give you the very best. It's like, I'll give you what I want to give you at, at this point in time. But their response is here, take, a, take our cloak, take our best. And they're taking palm branches. Palm branches in the Bible speak of victory. And they're laying down this palm branch and saying, you're the victorious one. Come on in. And, and church, this is something where I, I read this about the cloaks, and it seems so minor to us. But again, when you don't have a lot and you're just a common people on the outside, you're not a part of the Roman, you know, government or echelon, like, this is something they're saying, Jesus, I want you to see how valuable you are to me. I'm going to give my best to you. And there's something incredible, and I, I love how, like, I'm sure there's one person who did this first, then all of them started doing it. And it always seems to be as if, like, one person goes, I'm all in, then other people, I'm all in, I'm all in, I'm all in, here's my cloak, I'm laying it down for you, I'm all in, I'm all in. And they're laying it down, and Jesus coming in as royalty on this donkey. And we'll keep reading now, now so we see what's happening. This scene is crazy. People are lining the streets, throwing down palm branches, throwing down their cloaks, and they start singing. Look at verse 9. It says, Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Okay, let me just back up a little bit. So there's this great parade happening. They're singing out, Hosanna, Hosanna. What is Hosanna? Hosanna is a word we sing in worship songs that we don't know what it means, right? Like a lot of us sing Hosanna. We're like, I have no idea what I'm saying right now. Um, Let me just point this out. Hosanna is the Greek transliteration of the word hallelujah. It's the Greek transliteration of the word hallelujah. I love the word hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's hallel Hallel is praise, yah is the Lord. Hallel Hallel was praise, yah, the Lord was saying hallelujah, praise the Lord. Hosanna was kind of a way of saying that in Greek, and it meant something a little bit different. Hosanna meant save, but, but it meant save now. There's a cert- certain cry of like, God, come save us now. Don't wait. Don't wait, Hosanna. So when you're singing that song, know what you're crying out. You're saying, God, save now, save now. We need you now. Come now, save now. Now, let me point this out. This was part of the Hallel Psalms. If you notice, they're singing this verse. They're actually quoting from Psalm 118. So let me just, if you want to take notes, remember this. Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 are called the Hallel Psalms, the praise Psalms. It's specifically focused on a lot of praise. And with the Hallel Psalms, this would be something that actually the people would sing as they'd walk into Jerusalem. Let's say you didn't live in Jerusalem and you want to go celebrate Passover, which that's what they're celebrating here, or you want to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they would walk into Jerusalem singing the Hallel Psalms. They would sing Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. They'd know them, they'd have memorized, they'd sing those psalms. And here they are seeing Jesus and going, oh my gosh, he, here is the anointed one. Here is the Messiah. Here is the one we've been wa- waiting for. Save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Like Jesus, we give you, come on, save us. Now in Luke's version of this story and in Matthew's version, Maybe you guys remember this. The, the Pharisees are watching, and they're getting very frustrated. And so they're crying out, Jesus, save now, save now. You're the son of David. You're the Messiah. And the Pharisees are saying, Jesus, rebuke the disciples. That's what they're saying. And actually, it's, it's Luke chapter uh, 19, verse 39 and 40. They say, rebuke your disciples. And what does Jesus say? We'll throw the verse up here so you can read it. He answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus is like, they can't be quiet. 
If I'm walking in Jerusalem fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, if they weren't to cry out, tell, he's like, something will. Something will cry out. The trees and the stones will cry out. So you might think I'm silly for doing this. When we went to Israel back in 2010 and we're at the Mount of Olives looking at Jerusalem and uh, the pastor with his name's Chuck, he was telling us a story. He's retelling us a story. He's talking about the rocks crying out from the Mount of Olives. Like if no one was praising God, the rocks would be crying out. So I grabbed a rock uh, because I thought that'd be fun uh, to remind myself of this. And I grabbed a rock where it looked like his mouth was open. That's what I wanted to do. I'm like, this rock's crying out. Um, but I grabbed this rock as a token in a sense to remember that even if I don't praise, even if we don't praise, God's going to get the praise. That all of creation praises the glory of God. So I got my rock with his mouth going, ah, like this. I don't know. That's what I did. Um, but it's a reminder just to go, man, God, if I'm not going to praise you, you're going to be praised regardless. God, you're, gonna be, you're worthy of all praise. All of creation sings your praise. And Jesus is like, I can't rebuke them. If I rebuke them, something else is going to sing here. And I'll freak you out even more, <laughs> right? And so he's telling them this. And here's what I love. Verse 11 is so anticlimactic right? Like, Jesus comes in Jerusalem, and it's like, and he goes in the temple alone, quietly, and he just goes back to Bethany. Like, it's so sad. Like, I'm like, man, like, I feel like, where's the after party? Like, the Messiah is coming. Like, where's the, like, oh my gosh, Messiah is here, and they're, like, dancing the roads. Like, where is that? It's so anticlimactic to me, because he's getting ready for the next day, and here's what he's also fulfilling. Fun verses that Jesus is fulfilling a lot today. It's Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, if you want to write it down. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, listen closely. God says, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, listen, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And he says, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So this prophecy is speaking of John the Baptist coming to prepare the way of the Lord. And then it says he's going to come. He's going to come to the temple. And then Malachi chapter 3 verse 2 says this. It says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And we're going to see this verse in the next section. Jesus, notice this, he comes to the temple and he's scoping things out. He's not a tourist just observing the temple. Let me remind you, by the way, this temple, Herod's temple, was just incredibly glorious. I mean, they had menorahs, like those lampstands, six feet tall of solid gold. I mean, you, when we, you can still see they have one replica in Israel. They made it of gold on the outside. It's worth $3 million, one menorah, like today. And he, at Herod's temple, they believed had at least 20 menorahs at this time. A beautiful, glorious temple. And Jesus is walking around looking at things. And he's seen the court of the Gentiles. He's seen what people did transactions. And I honestly believe he's, he's getting ready for the next day. He's not a tourist, just checking things out. It says, who can endure that day? And the next day we'll see what Jesus does. But before we see Jesus do what he famously does, Jesus gets stopped by this tree. All right, and let's just read that. So we saw the entrance. Now let's look at number two, the tree, the tree. And it's not just random, I promise. Uh, verse 12, it says, Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. I like that. He was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see it. Perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. All right, what is up with the fig tree story? What is up with this? Um, and I think it's important to look at this as a whole, but it's funny how many people, like this bugs a lot of people. Like there are people who are like, oh Jesus, the curse in that fig tree, how dare he? Like there's like tree lovers all of a sudden, like how dare he, right? And they're very frustrated. He should not have cursed that fig tree. And I, it's funny, there's actually a couple commentators who commentated, I, I'll throw up a couple quotes without their name. Uh, they said, it was a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong. 
<laughs> Another one said, it is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of an ill temper. All right, I'm like, man, this really bugs people, the cursing of the fig tree. Like, they're mad about this. So what is this? Like, what is happening? Even when I read this, I'm like, come on, Jesus. Like, and this is the last miracle he performs. The last miracles, he curses the fig tree, and we're going to see it withers up and dies. And that's interesting to me. Like, Jesus can do anything. Why doesn't he just say, figs, be here? right? Like, I want figs to grow. Not like curse, like cursed you, fig tree. It's like, uh. So what is this? What is happening? What is going on? And I do think it's important to understand the context and understand this idea. So let me explain. Uh, This is the season of Passover, so it's springtime. It's around spring. Figs did not grow till summer, okay? So Mark points it out. He's like, hey, it wasn't even the season for figs. He's like, (laughs) you know, he's like, it wasn't even that season. It wasn't even right. Now here's what is really interesting. Uh, Figs will grow something, and there's like a technical name, like pagum, but they'll grow these little knobs. They're little edible. They're not like the really, they're not the fig yet. They're going to be figs soon, but they'll grow these little knobs or nodules or whatever, and you can eat these, and they taste terrible, but it's supposed to be fulfilling to the body, satisfying to the body. And here's what's interesting about this. In the spring, those knobs would grow, and then the leaves would grow. The leaves came after those little knobs. So this is one of the only trees where the the leaves come after the fruit begin. So when you see a fig tree full of leaves, you're assuming, hey, the knobs should be there because they come after. The leaves come after the little knobs. So that's like an assumption. So the tree looks like it's very alive. So Jesus walks over. There's no knobs, nothing, just leaves. And then he curses it and it withers away. So what is, what is that speaking of? So this tree, and I want us to see again the context, what's happening with the temple. The tree was very busy. It looked alive, but in reality it was dead. And ultimately this is speaking of the temple. Jesus looking at the temple. It seems busy, seems alive, but in reality it's very dead. And Jesus showing them an outward parable, really, of what's going on. To say it this way, uh, I'd like to say it this way, the fig tree is an acted out parable of our Lord's judgment on Israel. It's an acted out parable of our Lord's judgment on Israel. So, this cursing of the fig tree is saying, look it, there's activity, there's leaves, there seems to be life, but it, it's, hypocritical, it's a hypocritical fig tree. It's like, come on, like the, the leaves are saying, come on, I have fruit. You go to it, and it's like, oh, there's no fruit. It's lying. It's a hypocrite. And Jesus is trying to point out, hey, listen, this is the nation of Israel. It's interesting in Jeremiah and in other places, uh, the nation of Israel is so often compared to as a fig tree. So this, this fig tree many times represents and speaks of Israel. And he's saying there's a lot of leaves, but there's no fruit. And this is religion. This is people who do religious things, and this is the temple and the religious leaders. There seems to be life, but in reality, there's nothing. There seems to be a lot of activity, but in reality, there's death. And that's what I think speaks of religion. It speaks of Israel. And honestly, we have to be aware, does that speak of us? For us, for me, Josiah, for you guys, for our church. Is there a lot of movement? Is there a lot of activity, but no fruit? And I honestly think this is one of the things we have to take to heart. Like, God, please let us not be a tree that appears to have life, but there's nothing there. Please let's not be a tree that seems to have a lot of green and activity, but there's really nothing, not, not real fruit. So my question is, has there been real tangible change, real tangible sanctification in our life where we see, man, I was once in bondage to that, and by the gospel of grace, my life is being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Like, is there real tangible change happening in my life, in your life, in our church's life? Not just we're doing things, not just there's outward things, but is there real tangible fruit? Like, wow, this person was so unloving, and now there's love. This person was so impatient, and now they're patient. This person was so just rough, and now they're gentle. Like, is there actual fruit happening and being taking place in our life? Like, are we seeing that? Not just leaves. And this, this is honestly, I have to read this passage and go, God, please let us not be this fig tree. Like, you must read this personally, and I must read this personally and say, Lord, I do not want to be this fig tree that might have some sort of activity but no real fruit. Like, please, Lord, reveal this to me. 
Because Jesus is speaking of Israel, but I, I do want to apply that to us going, am I here? Are we there? Is there just a bunch of leaves here? Let there be real fruit. That's kind of been my prayer over this passage. Let there be real fruit in our lives. So Jesus is speaking of the temple, and you see this being like a parable of what's happening. And you see Jesus, we're going to see next, the next few verses, he goes to the temple, and there's much activity. But Jesus is very frustrated and angry because there's not real life, though. There's not real intimacy, though. And they're missing out. And and let me just point this out, because whenever I read about a tree in the Bible, you have to think about another tree. See, this tree was full of leaves, but no fruit. There's another tree that was full of fruit, but no leaves. This tree appeared to be alive, but it was dead. There's another tree that appeared to be dead, but is alive. And that is the cross. That is the tree that Jesus hung on. You look at the cross, and you go, that tree's dead. That's a dead tree with a dead person on it, and in reality, it's full of fruit. In reality, it's full of life. This tree looked alive, but it's full of death. The cross, the true tree, looked like death, but it's full of life. Amen? I think all, whenever I see a tree in the Bible, like God, help me see how it speaks of the greater tree. The, the tree where Jesus bore our sins, as Peter said. So I think this tree shows us, hey, this is Israel, but Jesus is going to have a tree that's going to look like death, but in reality bring life. And praise God for that tree. And so moving on, we see this outward parable of what's happening. We're going to read in verse 15 next. Number three, uh, we're going to see the cleanse. The cleanse. And not like a juice cleanse, not one of those, but the cleanse. Verse 15. So when they came to Jerusalem, then Jesus went into the temple, and he began, listen, he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares to the temple. Then he taught saying to them, it is not written, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, and they sought how they might destroy Jesus, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. All right, the cleanse. So let's just talk about this for a second. Um, we, like to, we like Jesus, who's loving and kind, and holding the little lamb, and be like, love those, love those who curse you. Like, we love that Jesus, but do we love this side of Jesus? The Jesus who, who's going to say your day-to-day life and how you're living needs to change. See, we love the Jesus who says grace and mercy, peace, love, like we love that. But what about the Jesus that gets face-to-face with our sins, face-to-face with the things that we love and hold dearly and says, give this up? What happens when Jesus comes into our life and overturns tables? Now, let me just point this out again. I used to read the stories like, man, Jesus just got randomly mad all of a sudden. <laughs> like, don't forget verse 11, he went into the temple the night before. And I just imagine him walking around going, this breaks my heart. It's not, about, it's not about real atonement for sins. It's about money. It's not about real connection and intimacy with God. It's not about true commerce with God, true business with God. It's about business with each other. And so Jesus has a chance to scope it out the night before. And this next day, he, he's doing this. He's showing them. He's making a lesson. He's making a point. He's going, this was supposed to be a house of prayer, but you turned to a house or a den of thieves. And at this point in time, it's a wonderful, phenomenal lesson. And let me just explain a couple of things, because I think it's important to understand the temple and the way it worked. So by the way, the temple had different like, divisions within it. There was something called the court of Gentiles. It simply means Gentiles could hang out there. There's different parts of the temple where Gentiles could not enter. So it's like, this is your space, Gentiles. And remember this, the, the, the nation of Israel was supposed to bring like, light to the Gentiles. The nation of Israel was supposed to say, look at our God, worship our God, we serve the one true God. And it's supposed to bring like curiosity about God and how to be right with God. So they actually had the court of Gentiles. But the court of Gentiles became a place where they bought and sold lambs and doves and, and animals. And, and here's the idea. Imagine I'm either a Gentile or a Jew, all right, and I want to atone for my sins. And I'm, I'm a Gentile going like, I want to be part of this religion. I want to be part of what you believe. I want to, I want to know your God. Or I'm a Jew coming to atone for my sins. I, on this week of Passover, would come with a lamb, if I had money, or a dove, 
doves are for poor people. That was their sacrifice. I would come with a lamb or a dove, and my lamb or dove would be inspected. And the priest would inspect the lamb or dove and say, ah, oh, it has a blemish. Uh, you, we can't use this. But if you buy one of our doves for $9.95, so what they'd do is, they'd basically, they would honestly, it's smart, it was like smart of them, is wicked of them. They would, they would inspect the lamb or the dove and say, no, this is not worthy, but we have pre-approved lambs, we have pre-approved doves, and you can buy those ones, and those will be good for your sacrifice for your sins. And it became about greed and wealth and, and money and commerce, and, and they missed it. And they're using this to objectify and take advantage of people. People had a real desire to know God, and they're abusing that. And it's sad because that's happened throughout all of history. And it's so sad. People have a real desire to get to know God and people twist it and abuse it. And this is happening. They're bringing their sheep or their lambs and they're bringing their doves and they're having to pay a higher price. And I, I want us to see that this is obviously breaking the heart of God. That he's like, you've made this into a den, a den of thieves. Let me just point this out. Um, a den of thieves, a, a home for thieves. That is not where they committed the crime. It's where you go after you committed the crime. So if you think about a den of thieves, it's like, oh my gosh, we just like stole a lot of money. Let's go back to our hideout. And the thieves would gather at their hideout, like the den of thieves, the house of thieves. Like basically the temple is becoming a hideout. The temple is becoming a hideout for all these thieves, for all these religious thieves, stealing from people. And they're going to this hideout place. And here's what's I think frustrating most about this. Jesus is basically sharing with them, they are, their lifestyle is saying, you can do whatever you want. You can live like hell, live like a pagan, do whatever you want. But as long as you go to the temple, you're good. You see, the church and the temple is supposed to be a hospital for sinners. It is. But it's not supposed to be a den for thieves. It's not supposed to, there's supposed to be people who say, I'm broken, I need help, I need healing, help me. Not a place where people hide out for corruption and greed. And this is happening. And Jesus is seeing this. And he goes, this was supposed to be a, a house of prayer for all nations, for everyone, but you've ruined it, you've distorted it, you perverted it. And I, I, we have to see the desire for holiness in Jesus. We have to see Jesus and I want to fight for what God intended this to be. Can I explain something? Do you know what the first temple was? The first temple was the Garden of Eden. And think about this. A temple is a meeting place between God and man. The Garden of Eden was the first meeting place between God and man. That's where man met with God. It's, it's like the first temple. When Adam sinned and that was corrupted, Adam's kicked out of the garden. And do you remember what was placed there? Is an angel with a sword so he could not enter back in. The idea was if you want to enter back into the presence of God, it's going to come through sword. If you want to enter back into the presence of God, it's going to come through death. And do we understand what's happening here? People are bringing lambs and doves. You want to enter back into the presence of God, it's going to be through death. And you see, when they'd kill a lamb or a dove, you know, the people would say out loud, they'd say, the lamb died for me. That's a phrase they'd say, oh, remember, the lamb died for me. It was slain before them, they said, the lamb died for me. The lamb died for me. We're told by Josephus, there's at one point in time over 255,000 lambs that were slaughtered on the week of Passover. 255,000! And 255,000 people going, the lamb died for me, the lamb died for me, the lamb died for me, the lamb died for me. And Jesus, who's the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world, he would be that last lamb, the finished lamb, the, the, the lamb to end all lambs, where we could say, the lamb died for me. The lamb absorbed the wrath of God. I could not enter back into the presence of God. There's an angel with the sword speaking of, again, you cannot enter back into holiness or, or intimacy with God unless there's death. And Jesus is like, I will take that sword. I'll take that wrath. I'll be the lamb to end all lambs. And the temple was to point to the greater lamb, to the greater priest, all of those things, but it became about money. And it was abused, and people were seeking atonement, and it was becoming twisted and perverted. So Jesus has a deep cleanse in this. And I think we have to, like, we as the church have to realize God longs for intimacy. That's why God created Adam. That's why we see that God created the tabernacle and the temple so people could have access to God, that we could have intimacy with God again. And Jesus, who is the last temple, the last priest, the last lamb, came to restore that intimacy. And he shut, he shut down business there because in reality, he's going to be the last for all of those things. 
And, and I do want to see if you guys remember that in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Right now, you cannot atone for your sins. Right now, if you're a Jew, you cannot kill a lamb or a dove to atone for your sins. There's no temple. There hasn't been a temple since really shortly after the life of Jesus. I, I even think God intended that because we have the last temple. We have the last lamb. We, we have the one who, who bore the sins. So we see this cleanse taking place, and Jesus now is going to turn to his disciples and show them the lesson behind all this. So let's look at number four, the lesson. The lesson. Verse 20. It says, <clears throat> Now in the morning... As they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to him, then, have faith in God. Such a strange answer. He says, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Now let's talk about this. Everything the temple was supposed to communicate and teach the people, Jesus is teaching them now through this fig tree. So understand, the temple was to communicate faith in God, forgiveness, atonement. Jesus is using the fig tree as an opportunity to teach faith in God and forgiveness. He's, he's pointing to the fig tree to show these lessons. He's saying, and please don't miss this, what is the point? Don't have faith in physical things like the temple. Have faith in God. The temple cannot save you. The temple's not the answer. He's like, you need to have faith in God. So we see that Jesus, what he's actually shown us to do is there are things that get in the way of prayer. I don't know if you notice this, but he transitions to prayer. Like, what is that? There are cer certain obstacles that get in the way of effective prayer. So let's just talk through obstacles that get in the way of effective prayer. First of all, we were faith in the wrong thing. We were faith maybe in something or someone and not in God. And he's showing us here's an obstacle to prayer. He's going, hey, don't look to the temple. Have faith in God. I, I believe that whatever you pray, believe that when you pray these, you have them, you receive them. Now, let's be honest. This verse has been abused and been abused a lot. This verse has, I think, been taken out of context. Jesus speaking to the disciples and not the multitudes here, and I think this has actually been abused in a lot of cases. A guy named Warren Wearsby said it this way, and I thought it was a good definition. He says, people say, if you pray hard enough and really believe God, God is obligated to answer your prayers no matter what you ask. And he says, that kind of faith is not faith in God. Rather, it is nothing but faith in faith or faith in feelings. He's saying, when we take this and say, whatever you pray for, if you, say, if you just believe it, he's like, your faith is not really in God. It's in that thing or in that feeling or that experience. But let's also really look at this for a moment. Because I had to read this verse several times and go, God, let me believe this. You know, we talked about this last week a little bit, but where John writes, if you ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Like true faith, again, true faith and true prayer, true prayer is not me trying to get my will done in heaven, but true prayer is me going to God saying, God, how can you get your will done on earth? And I really pray that God, help me believe this. So I know I've shared this briefly before in some small doses, but I really do believe, and I really am asking God, help my unbelief. But I really do believe that God wants to save people. Would you agree? Do you believe that God wants to redeem people's lives, right? Do you believe that God wants to reach our homes, our communities, our area, that's South Florida? I'm trying to pray prayers now that I feel like are beyond me. Prayers that I go, I know I couldn't accomplish or we could accomplish. Guys, I would love to, for us to be a community that will pray expecting and believing God to do great things. Like it's very hard to get there. I'm so cynical. I'm so like, no, God can't use, God won't do, I'm very cynical and I feel like this is a verse where I go, God, let me pray believing and expecting that you will save people more than I could. 
that you care for people more than I could ever care for. A guy named Hudson Taylor said it this way. He says, God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. And God, help me just realize I'm weak and feeble and I cannot do it and I just need to lean on you. I would love for us, God, can I tell you, there's never, there's never been a great work of God without prayer. There's never. There's never been a revival. There's never been bo- people being born again and like actual fruit, actual change. That's never happened without prayer. Never. Every great revival you study, every, every salvation individually here in our lives has happened because someone's praying or people are praying or the church is praying. A guy named Andrew Morey who, who wrote a lot about prayer said this, the man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelism in history. The people, the man or the woman who can mobilize the church to pray to go, God, we need you to work. I believe you want to save my family member, my sibling, my friend. I believe you want to do this and like mobilizing the church to pray. It's funny, I was talking to someone about this but a, you know, a year and a half ago, we're praying and praying for this church. We started praying for things that I was like, so I was laughing. Like we'd pray, like God, get us into a school. I remember coming to the school here the first time we ever came here, and I said, "Hey, do you guys like rent out the churches?" And they're like, "No, no, we do not." And they're like, "Bye." And I'm like, "Oh, dang!" Like I'm like, I like this area. <laughs> I remember like, "Oh, that's sad." And it's funny. About four months later, they got a new principal, a new um, or a new office manager, and that like changed everything. And a new principal. And we, I go back again. They're like, "Actually, yeah, like our principal's new. Why don't you come talk to them?" And it's funny, I remember just praying for certain things, and I'm like, this is never going to happen. And it's funny how prayer works. The more you pray for something, the more I'm like, I think this is going to happen. This might happen. This is going to happen. This is happening. And it's weird how, like, your prayer just, your faith just grows with your prayer so often. Like, I, there's people I prayed for, I'm like, they're not going to get saved. They might get saved. I think they're going to get saved. They're going to get saved this week. And it's funny how that just grows. And there's something about that. And God, like, God, help us be that. But there's obstacles to effective prayer. One is we have faith in the wrong thing. One is our faith is in ourselves or someone else, or something else, and we have faith in the wrong thing. Jesus shows us another obstacle to faith. We'll read again in verse 25, or read for the first time in verse 25. He says, whenever you pray, or whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Want to know another obstacle to prayer is unforgiveness? You know, the, there's, there's a side of this where we want God to do great things. We, we want to be part of a great work of God, and yet, Jesus is making it really clear, if you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart towards someone, you're not going to be forgiven. Honestly, this is said many times in the New Testament, and th- these are one of those verses I cannot downplay, and it rocks me every time. Jesus says, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will the Heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. I cannot try to, like, explain that away. You know how I would read that verse, and, and my answer is just forgive. For- forgive. If Jesus is on the cross, hanging there, bleeding, dying innocently, men are spitting on him and mocking him, and he simply says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I know this, if God can forgive me, Josiah, of the infinite amount of sin I've committed against him, how much more can I forgive someone who has a small amount comparatively to how much I've sinned against God? You know what I'm saying? There's certain obstacles to faith. There's certain obstacles to prayer. Maybe our faith is in the wrong thing. There's unforgiveness in our heart. And honestly, I think this is, we're going to take communion today, and I think this is a great time. If there's harborness or bitterness in your heart towards someone, I'd say confess that. Say, God, I'm holding on to this debt. They wronged me, but I won't forgive them this debt. I'm holding on to this debt, thinking that if they pay me back, I'll release this debt, but it's not going to happen. There is a debt we, we owe to God in a sense. I've sinned greatly against God. And God just simply released me of that debt because of the finished work of the cross. And I would say, listen, I think this is a great time for us to be a community of prayer. Let's make sure, one, we're forgiving. We're forgiving community. Let's make sure our faith is in the right person. And let me just end with this really quick, because we are going to take communion in just a moment, but please listen to this. Please hear this. Jesus is overturning tables. Why? What, were hap- what was happening at these tables? At these tables, people were paying money, 
because they wanted a sacrifice to atone for sin. It was, like, it was like blood money in some ways. But in other ways, it was, I'm going to this table to try to find forgiveness. Do you hear that? I'm going to this table to try to find forgiveness. I'm going to this table to pay money to atone for my sins. And Jesus, shortly after this moment, would offer us a new table, the communion table, where he's saying, you want to find forgiveness and atone for your sins? Go to another table. The table where we see this bread, the table where we see this cup, speak of Jesus' body and his blood. And here's the idea. I could never pay any amount to be forgiven. Jesus paid that amount. See, those money-changing tables were turned over. Jesus then offers us a new table, the table of communion, saying you could never atone for your sins. You could never pay for your sins, but guess what? I've paid for your sins. Come to this table. Stop paying money. Stop trying to work your way. Stop trying to think a sacrifice will satisfy it. I'm the sacrifice that will satisfy all needs. Come to the communion table. There is a better table. There's a better tree, and Jesus offers that to all of us. So here's what we're going to do. In just a moment, we're going to pass out communion. You're going to get a little cup, a little bread. Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, take that. Remember that. Celebrate that. If you're not a believer, there's no pressure whatsoever. Let the plate just pass in front of you. Why remember something you don't believe in? But if you say, I want to believe this, I I surrender to this truth, then take it. Remember what Jesus did for you. So I want to spend some time. Listen, we're going to have some worship. We're going to have some quiet time. Would you guys, when you receive that cup and receive that bread, just bow your head, close your eyes, you pray. Say, God, thank you for how much you've forgiven me. Help me forgive others. Like, pray some of those things. God, thank you that I don't have to come to a table giving money. Thank you, God, that the price is free. Thank you that I can come to you knowing my sins have been atoned for. I have a new table, the communion table, not the money-changing table. Isn't that good news? We don't pay for it. Jesus paid for it. We don't seek it out anymore. He, He did that. So I'm just going to ask that you get your cup, you get your juice. Just take a moment, pray over it while they're playing worship. We're going to come back up here and close with some prayer. But from this point on, you're going to receive it, pray over it, then take it when you feel ready. Let me pray for you guys, and then we're going to pass it out. Father, um, we're humbled by the fact that your son has offered to us a table where our sins have been atoned for, that the price has been paid, that God, we're not getting cheated or robbed, but we can come to you knowing that our sins have been forgiven, knowing that at the table, Jesus, we find rest. God, I ask that you, as, as you've forgiven us of so much that we'd also forgive others, that God, the bitterness in our heart, we're harboring towards someone, release that. That Jesus, there would be a, a genuine sense where we go, Lord, you've forgiven my debt, I, I forgive their debt. Let that really take place. Jesus, we thank you for your entrance. We thank you for the lesson you've taught us God, let let us have a zeal for your house. Let this be a house of prayer right now. So as we take communion, we invite you here and ask that you'd speak. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for this cup and this bread that reminds us of what you've done. We look to you now, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen.